0: A good fight for freedom of expression, and also promote literature and literacy. Tonight is the second in a series of four panel discussions that um, we uh, are having moderated by the inimitable Leonard Lopate. Uh, Leonard, as you know, is the host of uh, New York and Company and WNYC, now both AM and FM. And uh, Leonard has a gift for taking even the most bashful and tongue-tied writers and endowing them with the gift of gab. I have a theory about Leonard that in previous incarnations he was a confession box priest and then a psychotherapist (laughs) and finally a New York City detective and we're very lucky that in this lifetime he has decided to host the best book chat show on radio. For the first panel we had foreign writers in America, or at least foreign-born, and tonight we're almost turning the concept inside out by having American uh, writers abroad. Uh, It's interesting that uh, globalization uh, has been all the rage for the last generation, and at the same time there's been a steady retreat of American newspapers and television networks which have steadily uh, closed bureaus abroad, so that as our role and responsibility in the world have uh, increased, our, our knowledge at times has seemed to diminish in proportion. Let me just say, if you enjoyed tonight's program, I hope that you will think of coming to future events. We're having a wonderful presidential biographers panel uh, on April 10th. Um, We have Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., Richard Reeves, and Robert Caro, and possibly others. They will be pondering the paradox of why our politicians claim that they love to read books and yet rush to shut their archives to would-be biographers. I think it should be a splendid event um then on June 12th um, we're going to be uh, doing again moderated by Leonard a comedy at a time of terror how cartoonists and comic writers have managed to soldier on against great odds since uh, September 11th um, last announcement that uh, we have a central role in this huge um, centennial retrospective Is of John Steinbeck on, uh, no we don't have confirmations yet I on the the, the comedy to be announced um, we have a, a large role, and there's a huge um, John Steinbeck centennial retrospective that you will see bursting out everywhere. We're going to have it at Alice Tully Hall on March 19th, homage to Steinbeck, and then to Langston Hughes at Town Hall on April 30th. Um, we're very, very grateful for the support tonight, the Kaplan Foundation, FJC. Okay, enough advertising announcements, self-promotion. Leonard, take it away.
1: Ron by the way Ron is a wonderful writer and I'm sorry we couldn't come up with a panel for Ron when the when the shooting starts most people try to get as far away from the fighting as possible I'm not embarrassed to admit that I'd be one of them but foreign correspondents race toward the battle because their job is to be witnesses to history and then pass on what they've seen to their readers it's dangerous work that involves taking risks, sometimes it's even fatal. Yet most reporters who have covered wars say that the work was the most fascinating and exciting of their careers. A big problem too often is simply getting heard, even the tragic mass murders in Cambodia and Rwanda. Got little space in our press. Neither did disastrous wars in places like (coughs) Sierra Leone, Liberia, the Congo, Colombia, Sri Lanka. In some cases, the stories these reporters have told were considered unacceptable back home, and their accurate accounts have meant professional suicide. David Halberstam wrote a book last year in which he accused Americans in general of being isolationists. Did all that change on September 11th? Well, that's one of the questions that I plan to ask tonight's panelists, and I'll bring them out now. Amy Willens' first book was The Rainy Season, Haiti, Since Duvalier. Then she covered the grim complexities of the Palestinian Israeli conflict as Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. That was from 1995 to 1997. Last year, she published her first novel, Martyrs' Crossing, which opens with two bus bombings in downtown Jerusalem. Amy Willens. <laughs> Mark Bowden's coverage of Somalia won the Overseas Press Club's Hal Boyle Award for Best Foreign Reporting. His book, Black Hawk Down was a bestseller and the the movie version of it has been one of the major hits of this this recent movie season. He's also been to Colombia for his most recent book Killing Pablo about the hunt for drug lord Pablo Escobar which is carried on jointly by the United States and Colombian governments. Here he is, Mark Bowden. (laughs) And Sebastian Younger Uh, He had a bestseller, of course, The Perfect Storm, which was also made into a major motion picture, as they say. He wrote about reporting from Kosovo, uh, also Sierra Leone, Cyprus, Afghanistan, other foreign places, In his latest book, Fire. And he has a piece in the February issue of Vanity Fair called *Massoud's Last Conquest. Sebastian Younger. So do you agree with David Halberstam that despite America's dominant role in world politics, the American public has been largely uninterested in what's been happening beyond our borders? Has that been your experience as people who try to write about other parts of the world?
2: Yes. Mark. You know, I, th- <laughs> I think that's true. And, and you know, actually, in all honesty, I fall into that category. <laughs> um, you know, other than the stories that I've worked on myself, you know, I follow the news like everyone else, and uh, I would say that up until fairly recent times, you know, I, unless I had some personal experience with a part of the world, and obviously I've had an opportunity to do that more than most people, um, I, I don't find it inherently interesting. I guess, what even
1: though you're a reporter? You yeah, well I mean journalist?
2: obviously at the moment I b- I have to write about something. I become really engaged. But the
3: question is, do you read the local news? <laughs> you know, carefully? I mean
2: are I you America centered or I you don't even read, read the local right, that's news? That's like me. I
3: don't uh, read anything uh, except what I'm interested uh, in at the moment.
2: <laughs> 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 I get most of my news from T V, like most ah.
0: people.
1: I mean I'm um, the only one here who reads the world briefing first when I get in <laughs> the <New York> aircomb.
0: <laughs> so Sebastian?
4: Um, I mean, I read, obviously, I read the paper uh, every day now. Uh, I, when I went through my 20s, I think maybe literally without reading a newspaper, almost literally. Uh, I was waiting tables. I was doing different kinds of jobs. And I, I just I didn't think the rest of the world. It just didn't interest me. you know. And um, I, I don't know. I, I, I went to Bosnia. My first experience with a foreign story was, was in Bosnia. And I didn't go there because I knew anything about Bosnia. I, I went there because I wanted to try to figure out how to be a print journalist. And Bosnia seemed like a good training ground. And my it, w- it was totally backwards. I was interested in the work, not the place. But once I got there, I realized that not only was it very important for people to know, and for me to know, but that it was interesting. It was fascinating. It was riveting. I mean, there's nothing I'd rather do, practically, in terms of entertainment than read the newspaper. I mean, I really like relish it every day. It's a real pleasure.
1: It's interesting that you all write books until Philip Gerivich wrote a powerful book about the Rwandan genocide. Few Americans were even aware of it. Even though it often did make our newspapers the New York Times, we generally have something on page 16 about the rivers being filled with dead bodies. Leonard, are
3: you alleging that after Philip Gorvich wrote his book, then most Americans did become aware of well, the I think massacre? More did. <laughs> I did.
1: I wonder whether, um, whether there's something that happens, uh, whether the process actually requires a, uh, a, a book or something else that tells a complete story, whether we are uncomfortable learning about things in bits and pieces.
2: Well, I think that makes sense. I mean, uh, you it's not a big surprise, it shouldn't be, that uh, good storytelling uh, compels you to read and to learn. Um, and, you know, you've mentioned Philip Goryevich, but I think there have been other people who have written about Rwanda. What makes Philip's book? so compelling is he's a wonderful storyteller and, and a good writer. So that would be the book that would make people suddenly take interest. But in I it. would
3: assert that in America, if somebody sees the word Rwanda, they say, okay, I'm not reading that. because I have this experience because I wrote a book about Haiti and you know it was very well received and a lot of people who cared about Haiti read it and a lot of people interested in the Caribbean read it and a lot of Haitians read it to their horror and disgust. But uh, Americans, I can assure you, did not, you know, we're not clamoring for the knowledge about Haiti even though, ostensibly, it, it was a it good read. It depends reassure. on how you define yeah. a lot. Yeah, it depends
2: on what. I'm not
3: even talking mass marketing. <laughs> yeah, well,
2: I mean, like when I wrote Black Lockdown, uh, the, of a lot in book publishing is several hundred thousand right. people, you know. But when a movie comes out, a lot is,
3: So that's, you know, that's the way to reach people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hundreds yeah. of yeah. millions yeah. of
2: people. I mean, it's, uh, but it's you know, I, I, I mean, I wonder if the expectations aren't too high if right. you expect for that readers. many people right. know, to read. But I think, you know, actually Philip's book was quite successful and you know, for books, I mean it certainly introduced a lot of Americans right. to Rwanda.
1: Well, I, I assume now when I mention that eight hundred thousand or more people got in Rwanda that my audience understands what I'm talking about. Whereas at another time I probably would have gotten blind stares. And I, I that was before September 11th, so we can't really make the claim that Americans were totally isolationist before September 11th and then something happened. I'm not even sure that if a genocide was occurring in Burundi right now that Americans would pay much attention. You're all nodding your head. I'm
3: just thinking that, uh, of course now, I think Americans really are concerned about the Arab world and interested in it and see that they have a relationship to it. Therefore, it becomes like us it becomes a part of us and therefore more interesting to us. It has an effect on us. We've seen its effect on us. But I wouldn't say that the uh, it sort of rubs off on Burundi, tiny Burundi or on the Caribbean or on Latin America, for that matter.
4: Yeah, I, I think people's, and this is totally human, it's not just an American right. failing. I, I mean, people's interest in other things that are beyond their lives are, are or can be very self, uh, sort of selfishly motivated or self-interested. I, I mean, I was in Sierra Leone before a few days i got there for my first time a few days before uh it really went crazy a year and a half ago and i saw a very turbulent time in sierra leone i was there with someone it was his second trip and he had been he'd been there during the previous phase of, of violence in sierra leone and at the time uh kosovo was just getting pounded by the serbs and the people in sierra leone just could have cared less and there were plenty of people in sierra leone who were not being sort of disturbed or traumatized by the war. And they just, people don't care. It's beyond their borders, they don't care. That's totally human. It's just this country is in a position, which Sierra Leone isn't, to intervene, to do something about it, to improve or make the situation worse. I mean, we, we do have a sort of different relationship with international stories, because we can, if we decide to affect it, affect that story, we can. It's just a matter of deciding to. And that puts us in a very special role that a place like Sierra Le- people in Sierra Leone just simply aren't in that situation
1: well there, there is a difference between being interested and having the government interested and uh, somebody's recently written a book um, about all of the genocides of the 20th century, the Armenians, the Jews the Kurds uh, the Cambodians uh, the Rwandans and the United States government never once he tried to intervene or tried to stop it and rarely even offered an objection so perhaps uh, that is one of the reasons that the public is not interested. But when you when you read newspapers in France or in England, you really do get a sense of what's going on in the world, not just in their former colonies, but everywhere in the world. So there are countries where at least some attention is paid, or at least the, the press seems to feel it's necessary to pay attention.
3: Well, in Europe, of course, almost everywhere in the world is one of their former colonies. So part of the reason that they've always felt like world nations and then they also have that other thing of having people all around them who might not like them germany and france come to mind but you know all of europe has has borders with other nations that's why they speak other languages and that's why they have that more outward looking view than the americans do i think just
1: naturally how much are you as as writers concerned about the quality of your prose, because uh, most of the non-fiction I see is poorly written, but your books have been pleasures to read. I- is it that you're just naturally good stylist or do you um, <laughs> have more time to work on your work and, and craft a decent sentence?
3: Gee, Mark, you <laughs> answer.
2: <laughs> well, I'm always trying to be a better writer, and, you know... Uh, you work for newspapers, so I you're the one
1: who would probably be given the most leeway.
2: You, say I'd be given
3: you have the to most work
1: No. N- you know, newspaper reporters are not expected to worry much about style. No. Oh right, right.
2: No. No. Nor is your effort to to <laughs> have the time to worry about style rewarded. Nor,
3: if you put it in, is yeah. it accepted. No.
2: <laughs> but actually, I was very lucky in that regard. I worked for many years for the Philadelphia Inquirer, which was a newspaper that did, under Gene Roberts, really prize uh, good writing. And. Uh, and in fact Gene always emphasized style as much as, as content and uh, would give writers uh, not just the uh, opportunity to travel the world and do the kind of reporting that you need to do to write well because I think any nonfiction writing starts with reporting uh, but we give writers the time uh, to develop their stories to write them well and, and good editors to help them with it so in that sense you know I've I've never felt terribly constrained. I mean, I've been in my whole career always working to be a better writer, to be a better storyteller. And it's only really been in recent years that with all of the cutbacks in spending at newspapers and cutbacks in foreign bureaus and whatnot, that I've, and I've been lucky enough to have had some commercial success so that I can now, you know, spend the time that I want to spend, you know, writing the way I want to write. But no, writing is for me was the primary motivation, frankly. When
1: you were, Amy, when you were at the New Yorker, uh, I don't know how much lead time you had. I'm sure you had more lead time at Vanity Fair when you write an article for them. But um, was it something you had to hand in within a few days?
3: Not usually. Um, And at the New Yorker, one of the great things about working at the New Yorker is really the time you have to do your reporting, and the luxury of doing really detailed, reporting that so that's so wonderful and of course that really adds to what you can write and how you can write it even though the new scandal with michael finkel sort of raises questions maybe we can talk about that uh um but you were there
1: during the tina years i was
3: there uh, during the tina years and it could be argued that she didn't really care that much about your writing but she did i think and uh she wanted the story because she was like a newspaper editor in that way but this is tina brown the editor of the new yorker but she really liked to have good writing too but to me, I feel like Mark, I mean, the writing for me has always been really probably the most important thing. I think that's why I ended up writing fiction, even though it's a bad a political subject.
4: Yeah, I, I really enjoy writing, and I enjoy writing well, and I am miserable when I'm not writing well, and I can tell the difference, you know, I, I, mean, I, I really <laughs> That's can. the key,
3: first element. <laughs> yeah,
4: yeah, you can, and writing badly is a miserable experience, and so, you, you know, I don't know. It's, it's just there's a, it's richly rewarded for me, just as a person, just in the act, to sort of realize I just wrote a good sentence or a good piece. It's really pretty exhilarating. And everything I've I've, I've only written for magazines, I've written one book from scratch, and the other book was a collection of my magazine work. So, mostly it's magazine reporting. But you've also worked for ABC News. You were a correspondent
1: for ABC News. And I'd imagine that you couldn't spend as much time thinking about
4: just how well crafted this oh, is that's, that's not even writing i mean TV, i mean a tv script i mean really isn't it really isn't even writing i mean i'm not you know we can't even bring that up practically i mean it's really <laughs> a different realm but but in terms of magazine work i've you know I've, every story i've done has been in it has already appeared in newspapers in one form or another the diamond trading in sierra leone or whatever um, and i think a lot of magazine writers feel like okay it's been covered in the newspapers now i'm going to write something that that people will read, will really read, and um, uh, a, as sort of a piece of literature or whatever. And and you and you can, if you're a, a deaf writer, you can like John McPhee. You can get someone to read about, you know, how, how oranges are grown or whatever, or tennis or whatever. You can do it. You can even get them to write about some civil war in some foreign country that has absolutely no impact on America. I mean, the tragedy in Sierra Leone had no impact on us at all, except morally in terms of our consciousnesses
1: but th- the way you do it uh, all three of you is that you use fiction techniques to, to to write nonfiction
3: this is why I was so irritated by what this guy Michael Finkel is saying I don't know if everybody here knows what this is but this is this guy who wrote a story about uh, sort of a slave trade somewhere in Africa where was it I don't remember yeah, yeah. and uh, he was found by the for the New York Times magazine and he was found not to have identified the guy correctly to have really made a composite of this person and now he's saying well he was trying to make something beautiful and it really bugs me because you're so constrained as a non-fiction writer uh, not to create the actual facts you're trying to r- sort of write around reality and it's very difficult and you can't change when things happen and you can't change what happened and you and yet you're still trying to use the techniques of fiction because you want your readers to be able to bear to read the whole thing all the way through and uh, so uh, to hear him say, I was trying to make a beautiful thing, you know, without looking at my notes from my reporting, it was unbelievable. And mm-hmm.
2: it was also unnecessary, as I understand it. I mean, he had a great story. He had a great story. And yeah, well, it was so. I and mean, as I understand self-esteem. it, he had a number of young boys who had been sold into slavery or were in this process. And he combined them, you know, to make one character because he thought that that would make them more. Compelling read, compelling, and I'm dramatic, sure it, it did. As they say in Hollywood, a dramatic arc, right. you know, A better people. narrative. And the truth, the truth is that he had all the material to tell a really wonderful story. He didn't really need to make a composite. And for, you know, for my purposes, you know, I, I've always found that the truth is more surprising and uh, better material than anything I could ever make up. And, and one of the wonderful things about journalism is that it forces you to deal with reality. You know, if the world stopped changing at a certain point, we would all, all of us who read a lot anyway, would begin to recognize certain patterns. And we would we would hear about something happening somewhere and we would all go, oh yeah, that's that. You know, I know what that's like, you know, I know what's going to happen next. And what journalists discover is there's no that. You know, when you go out and work on a story, whatever it is that you thought is the truth about it is almost inevitably in error. You know, you find out, and th- and the reason why it's an error is that things constantly change. I mean, from day to day and from week to week, what you think is true changes.
1: But this would be great in a, in a, a world where there was wasn't politics. Sometimes reporters send back stories that are perfectly accurate, and then the people back home don't want to hear it I'm, I'm thinking about what happened with Raymond Bonner and Alma Guillermo Prieto some years ago when they reported on uh, the El Mazote massacre in El Salvador and the, they, they worked for the Times and the Washington Post and uh, the, the editorial page at the Wall Street Journal called what they had written communist propaganda they were both uh, penalized in effect uh, both of them wound up leaving their newspapers as a result uh, and I, I wonder about covering a story, telling the story that you know an editor back home is going to uh, not like or the, the, the people who you're writing it for are going to be upset about?
3: You know I worked for you Time Magazine at the time of the Bonner thing and of course uh, my editor there was Henry Grunwald at the very top and he was you know completely against any of the leftist movements in Latin America so I would come in on Monday and find that my you know my kicker had been changed my final paragraph would be like written by henry Grunwald and that was very shocking but i think now it happens less and what's really sort of creepy about the war in afghanistan is what they've understood what the government has understood is manage the press at the site don't wait till it gets back to you know try and put pressure on the editors because you might not succeed mm-hmm. but if you manage the press at the site and if you don't let good journalists like these guys go in and if they can't really get the truth then you don't have to report the casualty counts on the afghan side you know and i think that's what the cleverness of the state department right now
1: Seb- sebastian when you've gone to
4: afghanistan you've just stayed away from all of the official sources well i i mean i was there a year ago of course there are no americans there and then this this past fall um the americans were all covert and there were very very few of them i mean i was there through the fall of kabul and uh we were trying, I mean, all of the journalists were trying like crazy to even catch a glimpse of an American. We, you know, we, just, we just couldn't. So far from them sort of impeding us, they were very elusive.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs>
4: um, but, in, but in general, I mean, there are, there are situations that the American forces there have uh, restricted journalists from. But in general, the Afghans sort of run the show. I mean, I think it's tough to work around an American base or to get certain photographs of the whatever but
3: on the other hand, the French got that incredible photograph of them taking the prisoners. The Americans yeah, taking the
4: prisoners. That's right. No, it can be. It can be done. But for the most part, I mean, there's one reason so many journalists got killed over there. The Afghans, in sort of the tradition of being good hosts, sort of let you do whatever the hell you want. And if you want to ride on the tank, in the battle, fine, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> and and it really, I mean, you, you know. In Bosnia and other wars, the, the military is very, very restrictive. Now, no, you can't even go to the front line. Don't even think about it. Well, there it was wide open. And so, I actually, I think there was much less restriction of the press um, than usual in Afghanistan, with a few particular exceptions with the U.S. forces. But it was very, very narrow. And even stories that were very, ended up making the U- U.S., w- who I think acted quite well, quite successfully over there, um, stories that made them look very bad, like this recent thing that came out where they, they did a raid and they killed right. something like 16, uh, 16 guys who were loyal to the Karzai government, took the rest host- uh, captive, and they had to release them. I mean, journalists covered that story. That didn't, get, that didn't get strangled at all.
1: Well, Walter Cronkite had a piece in Today's Times, a letter it's in Today's Times, in which he complained about uh, the military not allowing right. uh, reporters it's a, it's a big to go mistake. into battle. Mm-hmm. He said that th- their argument is that uh, they... That they're protecting them, uh, their lives. But uh, he said, "Well, you know, uh, it's up to them. It's their job to uh, to defend the people's right to know, just as much as it's the job of the soldiers to go out there and uh, and shoulder their weapons to
2: defend it." Well, and and just for the record, I want to say that in my 30 years of newspaper reporting, I've never had an editor uh, censor or alter a story. Uh, because it didn't didn't uh, conform with what they're and
3: me only a Time magazine.
2: Yeah, was, uh, I've just never had it happen. And in fact, to the contrary, uh, editors have always looked for, in my experience, something that that uh, alters your preconceived notions. You know, they're looking for something surprising. Uh, mm. uh, again, yeah. I've never had that.
1: should be it should be put. Raymond Bonner is back at the New York. Yeah, Times. Yeah, he's back
3: at the New York Times. But in the on the issue of the Middle East, I think it is. You could not get certain opinions into American papers, I think.
2: Well, I mean, I went to the Middle East in uh, 1988 at the beginning of the first antifada, and I was in Ramallah, and uh, I, I came across a, a bunch of uh, Israeli soldiers uh, beating a Palestinian kid to death. And they were beating him with uh, 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 the uh, legs of a table. They'd taken apart this table. And, uh, and so they stopped because I was there with a, another journalist. And uh, I remember asking the captain, what provoked this? And he said, you know, just go stand over there. He wouldn't answer any questions. When we came back, they, there was, they had a, a knife on the sidewalk, a bloody knife on the sidewalk. And the captain of the Israeli unit said, this palestinian tried to stab or stab you know one of my soldiers Well, there are only about five soldiers there none of them were injured the only one bleeding was the palestinian kid and so i said well how did the blood get on the knife you know who did he stab you know the only one bleeding here is the kid at which point he refused to answer questions and shepherd us all well i wrote that story exactly as it happened and it ran and it ran in, in the this inquire space, ran the Inquirer and it ran throughout the knight ridder chain and it got you know i got attacked for being pro-palestinian and but, but your editors let it through yeah they edited it and ran it and but is,
1: i know from working on a public radio station that the most complaints npr gets thank god i don't work for npr is about bias in the middle east and i know uh, you probably have to deal with that as well whereas People didn't know anything about it. I couldn't locate Afghanistan right. on the map before September 11th. Well, everybody's uh, an expert 11. about the Middle East too. you can't write well, anything about the, the Middle Eastern 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 East opinion. Taked. And everybody knows that no matter what news is is, you're right. is, is, mm. is not being reported fairly.
4: Bias either way.
1: Sure. There are people who yeah. It
3: takes the Palestinian groups a little longer to get into gear about bias against them, but they tend to see the whole global media situation in america as biased against them right. and then uh the, the israeli lobbies tend to pick out a, a story here or there as not towing the correct line
1: so how did how did you deal with that the new yorker just ignored any of those letters that they got the complaint letters. under tina
3: brown she never sent me a letter
2: about it uh, we got roasted regularly in the choir
3: yeah the newspapers they had just
2: we read. are the right. Palestinian lobby, according to our <laughs> readers, you know, and there's no way we can. Have, and, and the editor of the newspaper was Robert Rosenthal, so don't figure. You
1: know. <laughs> uh, Sebastian, is it true that in Afghanistan, bandits see journalists as walking ATM machines because their pockets are just stuffed with cash? <laughs> um,
4: I, I mean, I've never been robbed there. Um, I think in a lot of countries. You know, you come in with a forty thousand dollars television camera and a bulletproof uh, land rover and cetera. I mean of course, I mean, I think any, anywhere you'd be seen that way in Afghanistan, I mean just so just indescribably poor. I'm, you know I'm amazed I mean how many people have been robbed over there? Not that many, you know and i'm I'm amazed it's not just rampant. so I mean sort of yes and no, I it, think it's actually. I think it's a lot less of a problem than you would think from that, that question.
2: Yeah. Likewise with me. When I was in Somalia, I, mean, I was trying to make my money last for as long as I could. And at any moment, I mean, I didn't have a weapon. Everybody around me had weapons.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Anybody who wanted to take all of my money at any moment could have, you know, but, but didn't. So yeah, what journalism. you do, though, what you do is you put your faith in the decency of human beings know and, and that's really what it boils down
3: to and it doesn't always work it doesn't always work but it mostly
2: it works usually it works
1: journalists didn't start carrying weapons until vietnam where they started wearing uniforms and weapons maybe because they became fair game for the first time um, I, i'm curious about that how you present yourself heraldo uh, was uh, shown in afghanistan with a, a gun by his side he said he was going to kill Osama bin Laden with it. <laughs> <coughs> Walter Rogers of CNN was wearing a marine helmet Walter and full Rogers. military gear. Uh, others go, go local and they, uh, they wear outfits that make them look like they've been living in the country for 300 years.
2: Uh, <laughs> You're talking about TV reporters, you
1: know, right. and, and that's not how uh,
2: print reporters work. Yeah, what did you wear
1: when you went to Somalia? You, you know, go, I you made wear the. the wear uh, this, this jacket?
2: I made the awful <laughs> mistake, which I didn't really learn about in retrospect, of wearing shorts, which apparently was offensive to everyone. But I did, because <laughs> it was hot. And um, the, yeah. the Somalis wear long trousers. Oh, and, or uh, the Maoris, the skirts that they wear. Uh, but I had on a pair of shorts, and I was only told later that this was really offensive. But you know, I think that, you know, I am. Print reporters tend to be non-fashion. Kind of people. Hey. Uh, sorry, no <laughs> offense. <laughs> Newspaper reporters, and so I, I just wear what I happen to have in my drawer and throw into my bag, you know, and get over there. So, uh, and you're not going to be. I mean, the story is not about me, so I'm never going to be on camera. And you're
3: not going to fit into the woodwork either, especially if in, you're in Somalia or Haiti and you look like us. You just don't.
2: So you, you just know. wear whatever and. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, pretty right. much. And try and and be honest. And no matter what you say, everybody thinks you're a CIA (laughs) agent. So you can't convince them otherwise. When I was in Somalia, it was funny. We went to a um, uh, one of Mohammed Faraidi's former uh, weapons center, which had been blasted by the United States. And they toured it. They wanted me to to show me the devastation of the American invasion, which had nothing to do with what I was writing about. But I go along with it because I try to be friendly. And I was worried the whole time I was there that there would be mines. So I'm what do you do when you're worried that there would be mines? What would you do? Watch where money. you put your money. feet, right? <laughs> so I'm watching where I put my feet. Well I get back later on and, and this guy I'm with says, Well, we all know that you're military, that you're American military. And I told him, Well, you know, you may know it, but it's not true. I've never been in the military day in my life. But it's obvious he said you've been trained. <laughs> I said, "Well, what about what I did it was obvious?" He says, "Well, the way you were walking, we all noticed. You know." <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> and it
2: was just pure cowardice. No, I mean, how uh, really <laughs> pure cowardice. <laughs> how, how much uh, training does it take to watch where you put your feet? Yeah. You know, if you think no, there are one,
3: one thing about being in the CIA that uh, has uh, come back in my mind recently because of what happened to Danny Pearl is, you know, they said he was CIA and his kidnappers, and then they said, "Well, he's Mossad." And to me, what happens to you if you're a reporter is, you know, you want to get something out of your source, and you tend to sympathize with everyone, I think. You, and when you're with them, you really... Well, you never with argue them. with them. And you never argue with them. And because you're saying to them, well, you might have a point, they think, aha, that's the clever way that this person is infiltrating my group. And you read to them. I mean, this happened to me in Haiti all the time. The closer I got to the opposition, the more they thought I was a CIA agent.
2: Well, I think also they can't conceive of, that you a, could be interested. of a society where there are curious individuals who would go to the expense and trouble of traveling to right. their country.
3: It is sort of ludicrous. Be, yeah, just because <laughs> you're
2: curious. You know, like, yeah, right, you know. But they do <laughs> understand
1: the importance of good press, and I would think that they'd be trying to spin Some,
2: you like mad. Uh, only the more sophisticated you do. No, they don't really. You see, we are all very press savvy, uh, but they're not in, in places like Somalia or, or I don't know. I've never been to Afghanistan.
4: No, they. They're no.
2: not press savvy at all, uh, but, and, and they tend to see you as a spy. A
4: spy right. or a guest. Like uh, what? In Afghanistan. Yeah, yeah. Guest Guest works. Yeah.
1: Well, you uh, you were very charmed, Sebastian, by the late Ahmad Shah Massoud. Obviously, in fact, you've. Compared him to Abraham Lincoln, so uh, you must have thought he was pretty great. Uh, uh, or d- was that because he
4: gave his life for his cause, or because he, he freed the slaves?
3: Uh. Or because he looked like him. <laughs>
4: <laughs> he did look a little like him. Um, I, I mean, I, 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 when I wrote about him, it was before he'd been killed. Um, and I w- but I was just, I knew he was taking an incredible risk. Uh, I mean, he had so many assassination attempts against, attempts against him. Um, and I just I felt that he had a, um, a disinterest in political power and a, a sort of vision, a very peaceful vision for the future that that rejected the, um, the right of other countries to manipulate Afghan affairs. Um, whereas a lot of the local political leaders were sort of playing Iran off of Pakistan or whatever. They're really sort of working it. And, and, and his stance was look, this is Afghanistan, we decide our own fates, and we need a a free and democratic country. And he knew he was really running a great risk sort of saying those things. uh, And he died for it. Uh, He was killed on September 9. And I I, I was just very, it was something really, I thought, very visionary about him. I mean, in its details, of course, he's nothing like Abraham Lincoln. But it was more just the sort of vision that he had for a, a, a fair society. But you say he
1: changed a lot because he has been linked to some of the chaos that led people to welcome the Taliban in the first place uh now we're starting to hear about many of those things coming back to afghanistan the warlords all killing yeah. each other robbing people <coughs> uh the there was a, a a shocking piece in the times the other day about pedophilia uh being a big issue again in afghanistan the taliban had stopped it for a time uh, i i i know you have to choose sides when you're yeah. covering many stories but do you and i'm asking this of all of you because you've all been in situations where there have been arguments on both sides how how much do you have to forgive the side that you think is the better of the two
3: can i say that i have suffered for forgiving the side i thought was the better of the two in haiti which was father aristide's side at the time aristide was a priest and he was you know fabulous and compelling and he stood up for the honor of his country and for you know its right to be a sovereign nation without Interference by foreign powers, and he was just incredible. And uh, now I think he's a failure. And, um, and I, I, I was listening to you talk about Shah Massoud. and I was thinking, now, if only Aristide had been assassinated, <laughs> yeah. then then you would have had this burnished image of him. And it's when you have to deal with the actual horrid politics of your country after yeah. the liberation so yeah. that it's harder to stick around. It gets more, a lot worse. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Arce has uh,
4: shown certain totalitarian tendencies.
3: Yes, well, let's say authoritarian, just to be fair. But yes, well,
4: certainly, certainly in Kosovo. I mean, <coughs> you know, the, the Albanians in Kosovo were, had a terrible time in 99, '98, '99 under the Serbs, and NATO stepped in and helped them. And you know what happened? As soon as the Serb military withdrew. Um, the Albanians started you know, these tremendous revenge killings against the Serb civilians, which was horrible in its own right. It wasn't as massive and as organized as what the Serbs had done. But I think it really shocked Westerners, who really like to believe in good and evil. You right. know, we're going to pick the good side, and they can do no wrong. And it's really not true. <clears throat> and I don't know how Massoud would have fared. I mean, he didn't want a role in government. At least he told me that. I don't know how he would have fared if he had survived all this. But certainly in the early 90s, I mean, the chaos of that country, he absolutely got sucked into it. I, I don't think he himself did things that were reprehensible. But there were commanders around him and even under him who were totally out of hand. Um, and in, in a war like that, you end up with sort of strange bedfellows. And, and I think that tarnishes a lot of people.
1: It also um, complicates your job as, as reporters, doesn't it? Because there's no way, unless you live in a place for many many years that you can understand all of the complexities of a situation even you if you live there
3: you end up being well. on one side or another and you really stop understanding i think right. um and so there's a
1: different kind of stopping understanding
3: right exactly you get caught up you know a lot but you don't understand anymore i think that happens to reporters who stay and one assignment for a long time robert no, Fisk in I, i've course.
2: never been any one place long enough yeah. to even Believe that I remotely qualified as an expert on what was going on. So as a result, my focus has always been as a reporter on what did I see, you know, what did I hear, you know, what can I reasonably know? And it's always been really, really narrow. Yeah. But that's, I think, the contribution that reporters make when they go overseas. It's not to go over to sort everything out for everybody. Yeah. It's to give you a fresh piece of information that you can add to the puzzle. Right. You know, as you're trying to figure out because there are so few reporters who actually do this kind of work anymore. Newspapers have cut back on it in a big way. I mean, we get most of our foreign reporting from I don't know, you know, maybe a couple of dozen cameramen, reporters and writers yeah. for the entire world, you know. So we know, you know, very very little about what's going on.
1: Barry Lopez, but tells a story about going up to the, some Inuit village in the middle of nowhere. And um, the, man, the man looks at him and he says, um, how long you be here? One day, newspaper story. Three days, magazine story. One week, book. <laughs> 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 that's <laughs> not <laughs> it. <Yeah. laughs> that's so funny because that's just
3: like a, uh, a story that someone told me when I first got to <laughs> Jerusalem. They said, well, if you stay here for a month, you'll want to write a book. And if you stay here for a year, you'll want to write a long magazine article. And if you stay here for five years, you won't want to write about it anymore.
1: <laughs> 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 but you <laughs> mean,
3: <laughs>
1: and Amy, you mentioned uh, the, the British journalist Robert Fisk, uh, who um, feels that journalists should stay in one place for a very long time because he says that the American idea of rotating journalists takes right. uh, them out just as they're starting to understand a story. You, you feel that that's not nice. No, yeah. I agree
3: with him. But I think he's, he's become an advocate and i'm not here to say whether he's wrong or right i often really find what he writes refreshing um, but i think we should stay longer than we do stay uh, in terms of newspaper correspondence but you know not forever because mm-hmm. then you're you're just a citizen of that country
1: and you're seeing the world from that that specific from one perspective. or so another we expect quarters. our reporters in this country to to report to not get caught up in those things here um I would want somebody reporting on New York City politics to be or a
2: Republican. New Yorker.
1: <laughs> well, right now, a Republican. <laughs> I, I don't know who Michael Bloomberg wants to speak to these days, but at least when Rudy was mayor or Republican. No, I, you know, you but want somebody who knows the city. But also
3: about in our own newspapers, I mean, when we talk among ourselves as journalists, is how the French, you always know, you know, Le Figaro is going to be a conservative point of view, and uh, Le Monde is going to give you a leftist point of view, and so you know where they're coming from, therefore you can interpret truth better than in the American objective way of reporting. So maybe it would be better if we had Republicans and Democratic reporting.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, there's that, that school of thought that thinks that you can never be objective no matter right. how hard you try. Um, in the end you wind up choosing heroes and...
2: ignorance uh, helps a lot. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, if you don't presume to know what the hell's going on, wherever you are, as I said, I mean, I've always tried to focus my reporting on, you know, very narrowly. And, you know, I've never had the opportunity. I have a big family. So for me, to, the idea of going and living somewhere, which is very appealing, you know, for a long period of time and writing about it has just never been an option. So what do I get to do? I get to go somewhere where I want to write a story and, and spend as long as I can until the money runs out, you know, basically gathering information, trying to understand it, but I've always been able to do that by focusing myself you know, rather narrowly and not deluding myself into thinking that I am an expert on whatever it is I'm writing about, I'm not. I can become an expert on something very small and very narrow, like say the battle of October 3rd and 4th in Somalia, but I can't tell you with any expertise the history of Somalia or you know what the political situation was that led up to it I mean it's just you know those are my personal limitations
1: one of the criticisms of the film Black Hawk Down has been that it tells the story totally from the American point of view and some people felt that that kind of that stereotypes the, the Somali um, you know
2: I, and I he- obviously have heard that and and there's, a, there's some validity to that argument but that doesn't uh, in my opinion uh, devalue the, uh, the movie or, or the book, which does actually go into much greater detail about Somalia. I didn't say the book. No, no, you say did the say book. the movie. But, uh, but I think, you know, I b- but it's true also. I mean, uh, in defense of Ridley, when I wrote the book Black Hawk Down, um, I chose not to write a book about the American intervention in Somalia from 1992 to 1994. If I had, we wouldn't be talking about it right now know it wouldn't be a movie. I, I, I wrote a book about a battle and frankly my primary interest was in capturing the experience of combat and and there's no question that you could write this, a book about the Battle of Mogadishu and feature ten Somalis who fought in that battle in the way that I did in the book and it would be a very rich and compelling story, and frankly I think would not differ extraordinarily from Black Hawk Down, because I think the experience of soldiers in combat is a kind of universal experience. But I think that's a legitimate creative goal, is to try to understand and capture the experience of combat. Which I
1: guess I'm getting back to a literary thing where, after all, this is for pen, and that's the difference between writing in third person and first person, and with journalism that becomes an issue as well, perhaps trying to be objective as third person.
2: And
3: I really wanted it to be, excuse me, a guy's book. <laughs> so I really envisioned it as a third person book. But then I had to have an arc, there you go. and I couldn't figure out what was the arc, and the only arc I could find was me. So I ended up <coughs> writing it in the first person. And Then I wrote a novel more recently, and I thought, well, of course I'll write this in the first person, and then somehow it ended up all in the third person. I don't, it's almost, you know, art is weird and you don't know why you make these decisions, really. But it's, it's almost, you know, I, it always has to balance out for me in some way.
4: The mm-hmm. Bachelor almost everything you write is in first person, isn't it? Yeah, really sort of light first, I mean, The Perfect Storm wasn't, obviously, but in terms of journalism, yeah, really light first person. And, and what I found, with, with a couple of exceptions, what I found is that I'm often reporting on I very rarely um, sent a report on a specific topic. And when, when I have been, it's always third person. I wrote about a journalist who died in 98 in Peshawar, Pakistan. Um, and it uh, was absolutely third person. I just I was an investigator. I came you know, a month later, and I had nothing to do with the story. But most of these countries are very chaotic. There's a lot of different aspects to the story, a lot of the different areas that I visit, people that I talk to. and know, surprise, surprise, I end I end up being like the common thread that right, ties that's them all what I together. Mean. You know, and so it you're actually I mean you don't you don't want to write something that puts you on stage, but you can use yourself a little bit just to sort of give the reader a break so that they have a sort of continuity that makes the piece read more, more nicely.
3: Yeah, and they feel a little bit like they're holding your hand as they go through it. Yeah. If if you're writing right. in the first person. What I don't like is when it's just first person for no reason, you know, when it's like I walked into the living room and he was sitting on the couch. The New Yorker sometimes allows theaters yeah, right, to do that in some right. way that I find writing not about useful.
2: Writing about their reporting. As right, writing course. about their reporting yeah. going but Back to Geraldo or right. those reporters with costume sure. hats. Uh, <laughs> TV is all about. It's about the theater of reporting and it's actually a lot less interesting than, than they make it out to. Actually, maybe a lot more interesting. A lot less theatrical.
1: Sebastian, you, you talked about a piece you wrote uh, about a reporter who died, and although everybody here said earlier that they felt uh, that, uh, that strangers were quite kind, we <coughs> nine people have died in Afghanistan. Daniel Pearl is on everybody's mind. And Robert Fisk, who came up earlier, says that reporters used to be looked after in danger zones like the Red Cross, but now uh, they have become fair game. Maybe it started in Vietnam, but it definitely became obvious when Terry Anderson, Associated Press was kidnapped and uh, people have been killed in, in almost every conflict. Reporters have been killed in almost every conflict as a way of making <coughs> a point since that time.
3: Well, you are there. I mean, you're an American who's there, so they, you're someone they can lay hands on. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the Israelis at the checkpoints. There's a reason why they're the ones who, because they come into contact.
2: Right. And when you're there and there happens to be a lot of anger, Uh, sometimes you become the focus of it i I was in um kanyanese in the in the gaza strip and uh, one night uh, i was in this town and i went to visit the mullah and the night before a young girl from this village had been killed when a tear gas canister had gone off in a stairwell and she'd been trapped in the stairwell she choked to death and the canister which they brought to me in the meeting had been manufactured in pennsylvania (laughs) <laughs> and so there was actually a crowd of people outside the mullah's residence, a- an angry crowd, when they learned that there was an American. From Pennsylvania. Like, did
3: they know you were I'm from P- Pennsylvania? I don't think they knew I was <laughs> from Pennsylvania. You did not confess.
2: <laughs> I wasn't saying much at that point. Uh, but they, and, and in fact, you know, the uh, resolution of the drama was that the mullah went outside and talked to the crowd, and because I was under his protection in his house, they were not allowed to attack us until we reached the end of his street. So we went out, we literally went out and got in the car. There were all these people with uh, big rocks. And um, I mean, you know, when you read about Palestinians throwing stones, it always sounds so pathetic. It's a pebble, right? Right, where you've been to the Middle East. I mean, the rocks are like grapefruit (laughs) and they paint little Palestinian slogans on them. And one of them hits you and you're dead. So we get in the car and we just gunned it, you know. And as soon as we got to the end of the street, the, the rain of, Rocks, you know, fortunately we had a good driver and we, and we got out. But that was my experience with that. I mean, if you're an American in the wrong place at the wrong time, you can become a target. But I think that, you know, Danny Pearl's story is a new and more malicious strain, which is, you know, people who are um, determined to spread fear uh, throughout yeah, the West. That was a world. political act.
3: It yeah. was extremely cold-blooded yeah. it, it was
2: not just the cruelty of it it was the spectacle the next second they videotaped it and gave out the, the idea is to frighten reporters but why do westerners. they want to
3: frighten reporters i see why they might want to frighten westerners because i don't think i've they, really been puzzling because over it.
2: i don't think they see us in the same way that, that we, we see ourselves
4: we're yeah. instruments of american policy yeah. and you know, et cetera propaganda yeah spies yeah. I mean we're what many journalists end up having to be in countries like that
3: right
2: sure because in that kind of a society certainly with these you end up going to the state department well but they they already know the truth they already know everything they need to know about the world uh, because it's been revealed to them and for for a society to have people like sebastian and amy or myself Mm -hmm. who go out with the sole purpose of finding out you know what's happening it's just It doesn't compute contradictory yeah it doesn't compute with them they can't believe that anybody would really do that
3: i have been in so many situations like danny pearls i mean i've been with hamas you know they're supposed to be so scary they seem really okay when you're with them and hezbollah i didn't know enough to be scared and now i don't know if i would really put myself in that situation what's
2: scary about danny pearl for a journalist is that if i read about somebody who has driven off into a very dangerous part of uh afghanistan where there's in no a convoy. in a convoy and a bunch of bandits get him and kill him well i mean i think that's the calculation that they made they went off into a very dangerous yeah. place where you know you could get killed but now danny pearl did what i would have done you know he mm-hmm. was in yeah. karachi he went to a meeting at a restaurant, at a restaurant i'm sure know. the people who he was talking to were extremely helpful and you know seemed to be very open and willing to cooperate with him so there were no danger signs anywhere and you know so i would have gone down that road
4: yeah oh he was he was all of us you know yeah i I think he really was i'm i'm reminded of that of a recent new yorker
1: cartoon where these people are at a cocktail party and they say you know if the people in al-qaeda would just come to a party like this i think that they would like us (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we're, we're but that like was that. just my
3: feeling after September 11th. I was walking down the street afterwards and, you know, up in the Columbia neighborhood and there, were it was so beautiful, the weather, you'll all remember that right after that happened, and there are all these open air sort of, quote, cafes. And I was looking at all the different kinds of people talking to each other and, you know, having alcohol and, and I thought, gee, they're trying to destroy all this, but, but they would like it if all things... It's so cool. It's so cool.
2: Everything's so nice. Um, <laughs> actually that piece in The New Yorker had uh, Jonathan Rabin's piece mm-hmm. was one of the most interesting things I've read about the origins of this uh, uh, sort of the, the alienation of the Arab man in Western society and and I don't can't remember the name of the writer who lived in Gen- writer, uh, right? Who is sort of whose his work is kind of a, uh, a Bible for a lot of these people I mean that to me was one of the most interesting insights into uh, their way of viewing the western world and precisely why they would not consider
3: that's such a lovely scene. right, right.
1: the cliche is that foreign correspondents are hard-bitten and cynical uh, is, is that ever true i mean you people seem to be
4: nice enough
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I don't find them to be particularly i mean the i mean some i mean the the electronic media i think end up getting shuttled around so quickly from spot to spot that you just can't care about Congo, Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, and in and Palestine all within a month. You just can't do it. You're overloaded. But the, that's that's TV mainly. And and the, the journalists that I know that I've worked with um, closely, they, I'm amazed at how pained they are by the situations they find themselves in. I, I mean, I mean to the point where their their career starts to bog down a little bit because right. they get so involved in this relief effort or getting medicine to this you know what I mean just all of a sudden they're like
3: oh my god a relief they're like thing. Red Cross
4: yeah but they don't become
1: inured the way cops do or, or people in medicine people in the medical professions after they've seen like in Sierra Leone after you've seen the, the 50th person with his arm cut off
4: um, I think they pretend to be because I think a lot of them pretend to be because it's sort of a macho pose frankly and they sort of have this sort of like they think it's cool and, and it's, it, there aren't that many to do that, but they're really recognizable. They're dangerous people to work with because they're sort of cowboys. They're
2: mostly photographers. They're and photog- a lot well, of them photographers, photographers. have to
3: be yeah. that way. You have yeah. to say yeah. that photographers have to be that way. I always would say in Haiti, OK, photographers stay. We're leaving. Yeah.
2: yeah. No, I was do in Ramallah at one time I mean, I when, uh, when all the Shabab came marching out of the mosque and there was a big confrontation brewing. And I'd gone with this wonderful photographer named George Azar. I don't know if you ever oh ran no, into no. George he did a lot of really incredible work in Beirut and he was with me and, and I made the mistake of going with George. And George says, oh, I'll take you to where things are happening. So
0: <laughs> out
2: come, you know, this, this mob of Palestinian youth, you know, with their faces all shrouded in khatiyahs, you know, ready for confrontation, And I'm thinking, okay, this is cool. You know, I'm gonna <laughs> do something. And then I turn around and look at the other in the street are the Israeli army guys loading up their <laughs> weapons and I'm in the middle, right? And so the tear gas starts to fly. And I start to run, you know, looking for high ground. And this is the difference between a writer and a photographer. <laughs> you know, I'm desperately trying to get out of there. And I, the last thing I saw was George pulling a gas mask from off his belt, which he hadn't told me that he had, and, and wading into the middle of this chaos. I love know. that he didn't tell you to bring no, one. No, he never told me, <laughs> you know. So, but that's the difference. But, you know, the, especially since um, the TV networks have cut back on their foreign reporting, there has emerged uh, in the last 10 or 15 years of a small group of kind of itinerant photographers and cameramen yeah. who supply almost all of the footage that you see of foreign conflicts, And they travel from war zone to war zone. Really and drugs and alcohol and sex are known to play an important part of their lifestyle. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it is- well, As opposed tra- to us all. Yeah, really, <laughs> with me. Uh, they always bring a gas mask, no They always anything. have gas mask. <laughs> Uh, and great sources, you
3: know. Yeah, they are great sources. One
1: of the ironies of September 11th is, or Afghanistan is that uh, right after the U.S. got involved, I think 2,500 mm-hmm. reporters were sent over there. Now it's down to 500. But at a time when ad revenues were down considerably and the newspapers are cutting back like mad. So part of the uh, the uh, the focus of this conversation was supposedly... Uh, are we going to become more involved in world events as a result of 9-11? Uh, if, if newspapers are going to close down their foreign offices even more because they don't have any money, are we going to be able to?
2: Yes. There will be, I think, a sustained <coughs> increase in the level of interest in foreign reporting yes. from here on out. And, and the reason for that is simply that the United States is once again projecting military force and diplomatic efforts throughout the world. The actions and of evil. But it's, to Americans, you know, what you can write, as Sebastian said, you can write a wonderful story about a civil war in Sierra Leone, but if there's no Americans involved, Americans are not going to read that story or be terribly interested, most of them. But because we are, as a country, projecting ourselves much more internationally, I think newspapers and TV networks are going to follow. Yeah.
1: Is that frustrating when you're telling a story that you think is very important and you know that few people are going to read it back home whether it's Haiti or Sierra Leone. This is my know.
3: area of expertise. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, it's, it's very frustrating uh, but you tend to be begin to believe that well you know it is important on a human scale but maybe it's just not that important to the average person living in Perth Amboy, New Jersey and you just have to resign yourself to your commitment to the story Mm -hmm. rather than your desire to you know have the world stand up and recognize that the story you're telling is
2: important it's the great frustration of foreign correspondents is that they feel passionately about they see incredible things i mean the things happen in places around the world that if they happened in this country there would be tv docudramas by the score about the but because they happen in some place in Southeast yeah. Asia or Africa, no one's ever going <coughs> to hear about them. And even if you write about them, you know, you're not necessarily going to get anybody to read it. And so it is. It's, you know, most of the people I know who've spent careers doing foreign reporting are dreadfully frustrated by it. But I think, as Sebastian said earlier, it's very natural. I don't think less of the American right. people because of it. It's just, why should you take a strong interest in what's going on someplace where you know nothing about it, you know nothing about those people, what happens to them has no influence on your own life. You know, I think that's a fair assessment of how to spend your time reading, gathering information. I I just think that it's sad, but true.
4: But September 11 answered that question, why should you?
3: Why should you, yes, it
4: It resoundingly. it, It really did. And I mean, I'm amazed at the level of interest in Afghanistan, I mean, the, the last chapter of my book was on Afghanistan, and I was on a book tour after fire. fire. I was on a book tour this winter, and I was just amazed. I mean, I can go to Denver or Minneapolis or whatever, and people, the, the, the detailed question. I mean, the, the people were just, they just wanted to know anything they could possibly get their hands on about Afghanistan. I mean, I, I was just amazed. And I think they finally saw, I think a lot of foreign reporters were, were sort of vindicated in this awful way know basically foreign reporters because they're doing this work their feeling is their opinion is the rest of the world matters it matters for reason of just human compassion because a lot there's a lot of suffering out there but ultimately it matters in terms of our security and our safety and that was shown to be true on September 11 I think people the public I think finally really got it
1: But what about people in journalism Uh, after Watergate the, the journalism schools reported that there was no flood of young journalism students dying to become uh, investigative reporters. In fact, they likely—they were more likely to say their goal was to become another Connie Chung than a Bob Woodward. And it turns out the same thing is happening now. There isn't this flood of, of kids saying, I want to become a foreign correspondent. In fact, the same people who always wanted to be foreign correspondents are. That uh, the, the reporters and photographers who are young freelancers trying to make names for themselves and the, uh, the more seasoned journalists who see this as a way to advance a career, that's how you win a Pulitzer, uh, you're not going to win a, uh, a writing oh. about what's on the police blotter in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And then people who, I guess, and every once in a while, people who just um, are committed to telling a story that they can't tell any other way.
3: I think it takes a sort of deviant character. To want to be a foreign correspondent, and and, and that's why. It's, I mean, it's, isn't it more pleasurable really to spend a life being Connie Chung? I mean, if you're talking about just
2: well,
1: pleasure and that.
3: having, and, and you know, being worshipped and all that. Of course, stuff.
1: there's always the more pulpit part of that story. <laughs> 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 right.
2: That's but they both got a
3: tough deal. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that uh, it does take a, a slight bit of deviance, and I, I think that you you really. You know, I mean, we're talking here about how Americans aren't that interested in, in foreign affairs, yet we are. So we must be somehow out of the norm. And that's why you don't see, you know, not all journal. I speak as a, an associate professor of journalism at the Columbia Journalism School. And I can tell you, not all of my students are really, really interested in foreign affairs, in <coughs> political issues, in this country even. A lot of them are just interested in, you know, sort of working for glossy magazines. Mm-hmm.
2: But I think it is sustained. And I think by definition it involves a fairly small number of uh, reporters because it takes a lot of money for a news organization to send somebody overseas and sustain them for a period of time. And it makes perfect sense to me that young people would realize that they're not going to start work in a newspaper or a magazine and immediately go work overseas. I mean, it does take time to get to that point. But i think that the fact is that we are like it or not as a country going to be much more engaged throughout the world uh, than we have been in the past 10 to 15 years and when because we are uh, we're going to cover it you know new serious newspapers and and magazines and tv can
3: i I just add one more political note to that i mean it's not like in the past 15 years we haven't been seriously engaged we haven't had a military engagement therefore young people from this country haven't been engaged actually over there. Right. So I think that's really what it is, it's the personal engagement of actual families well, of soldiers, right. the, the, the Gulf War, War. Right. Um, and, then and I possible. think that makes a big difference. Yeah.
2: Some of the, you know, real internationalists of uh, the young generation today are military people. I mean, I found that when I wrote uh, Black Hawk Island, which was my first real exposure the military and I spent a lot of time going to military bases and I've met thousands of young military people and it's amazing to me how smart uh, some of these young like 25 26 year old captains Mm -hmm. in the army are who have spent uh, three and four years in Eastern Europe or in Southeast Asia or in Africa and they've taken an interest in the language and they've taken an interest in the history I mean you would think that you would find these kinds of people in journalism but in fact I found a lot more of them in the military, for better or for worse. Probably in the CIA. So and I, I think they're <laughs> going to, but they'll come, a lot of them will come out of the military and go on to do some in the CIA, I'm sure, but in other things.
1: We have about 10 minutes to go, and I did want to get some questions from you here. Uh, if you would keep your question as brief as possible. the young woman, yes. Did everybody hear the question? Okay, well, how do you strike that balance between
2: well, I personally the
1: audience and telling the truth?
2: I personally think that the way to, to uh, if I'm thinking about an audience in the United States, I think that the way to be most compelling and interesting is to tell them something they don't know, to surprise them, to, uh, to shatter their preconceptions. Uh, if I write a story that just reinforces, what they already know, it's not going to be very interesting. It's not going to be very well-read. So if I anything, I have a, an inclination mm-hmm. as an American journalist to uh, try to, to present something different, You know, to find something true that will surprise people at home.
1: Another question? Over here, yes. the US government come to
4: your aid if you're kidnapped. Well, you're a US citizen, you know. Uh, yeah, I think I think they yeah, I think they 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 do have a responsibility. Um, often there isn't much time, Daniel, yeah. Pearl, um didn't live long enough. And they do a lot. I mean, I Terry Anderson out either. No, right. that's
1: right.
2: They, they, they do a more lot. Important than I don't. I don't agree. I mean, you I've don't. always felt if if first of all, I don't go anywhere without thinking about it really seriously beforehand and if i know that i'm going somewhere that is not advisable for an american citizen that's a conscious decision that i'm making and you know while i would certainly welcome (laughs) any effort by the united states it wouldn't be like i would go to my grave cursing the united states for not saving my expect them
3: to get as involved as they would in any other citizen's problem but you know and they you might see get into a worse problem I'm than any other. On them no, get you in not expect right? them but to.
4: Rest. But they assume in Peru. they do feel a responsibility. Yeah, right. they I'm do. They, they, they that, do. Actually. They do. It's not being imposed by us. I mean, they really do. It, 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 so.
2: But you know, when I before I went to Somalia in nineteen ninety seven, I called the State Department and said, talking to the guy in the Africa desk, asking for his advice, and he said, "I'll give you some advice. Don't go." Yeah. <laughs> so under those circumstances, you know, when I went, I felt like what well, wouldn't be really sporting of me. To feel like they We're are offended. under any obligation <laughs> to save my ass after telling me not to go.
1: Mark, you went to Medellin, which some people say is the most dangerous city in the world, to write to about Pablo Escobar. Did yeah, you feel engaged there? I think that that's there?
2: exaggerated, actually. I mean, Somalia to me was a lot more frightening than Colombia was. Uh, Colombia has great restaurants and
1: <laughs>
2: terrific hotels. And
3: they understand and protection money.
1: Yeah. Spanish very well. Yes?
2: Um, Well, I just think you're mistaken.
4: About what? yeah.
2: I never wrote stories about slaughters of uh, Somalis. I don't, I'm not aware of any atrocities committed by American soldiers in Somalia. Did you see the article Alex Scovron wrote uh, about three weeks ago? No. Um, I have it here. I'll it to you He says that, uh, and Noam Chomsky actually told me personally
4: that you had done great articles in the wire about atrocities yeah. committed by Americans. Yeah, it's interesting
2: the spin that so was so put was on, that on those not stories. True. Not true. I mean, basically the story that they're talking about is Black Hawk Down. And if you've read Black Hawk Down, the book is actually a much more um, uh, fleshed out, much more detailed accounting of what's in the newspaper series. There's less in the newspaper series than is in the book. But, you know, some of of the more leftist press, particularly in Europe, uh, spun those stories to uh, uh, say... That i was reporting on slaughters of uh, uh, somali i mean the story is that a small group of american soldiers went into mogadishu they attempted to conduct this raid it was designed to hurt no one it was designed to arrest some people and get out and while they were trying to do this mission they were attacked for some perfectly understandable reasons but they fell under attack and they fought to save their own lives and those of you who've seen the movie I read the book. That's the story. And yes, in the process of fighting to survive, uh, I think well over 1,000 Somalis were killed, including many non-combatants because they were fighting in a heavily populated city. And if you've seen what a 50 caliber round can do, I mean, the, when, where you have flimsy architecture, if you miss what you're shooting at, that round's going to go a good you know, three-quarters or a half mile before it stops, and if it hits anything, it's going to kill it. And so a lot of people died in that. But if you interpret that, you know, as being the moral equivalent <coughs> of me lie, which some of the leftist journalists in Europe did, then you could spin it that way. Were the I have seen before. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean yeah. you saw them mowing down large numbers of Somalis in a very big city, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But the context is not one of an atrocity, I don't think. Uh,
4: where, where is your next
2: assignment.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, I, I call journalists who have worked there before. Uh, and, um,
3: and and want re- to know a lot about it.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And they're very, journalists are very, very generous. I've found very, very generous with information. Um, and I just pick their brains. And I get the name of a good driver translator. Yes. Yeah. Um, someone to meet me at the airport when I fly into Freetown or whatever. I mean, just to minimize all the variables as much as possible.
3: Borrow a flak jacket from somebody on the scene?
4: Yeah, yeah. You just do well, Once you get there, you trust your instincts.
2: Yeah, so exactly. You, you, you meet people and uh, you ask for the help that you need. You hire the people who you trust. If they do something that gives you the willies, you get rid of them and hire somebody else. I mean, I've been in situations where, like in Mogadishu, where I had uh, like 14 armed men, and we were going out to do some reporting. And as we were pulling out of the compound, uh, for reasons I still don't completely understand, another group of armed men came up and fell into this violent argument with the guy who was the head of my group. And of course, I don't speak Somali, so I have no clue what they're talking about. But I don't like it. You know, I don't, don't like the vibe. And so what then the, the one armed group drives off. And the, the guy who's head of my group comes back and sits down and says, "Okay, we go now," you know. And I say, "No, we don't go now. You know, we go back. You know, I'm not. I don't like the way this feels, yeah. so I'm not going. You know, that But you just trust your, your judgment. You know. We
1: have kind of a one more question. Okay.
2: they already have a you know Already, very important probably the most important (laughs) you know in that they're just about yeah maybe yeah that they're just about everywhere uh yes definitely you know i would think that uh you know the appetite for foreign reporting has grown at newspapers and tv networks throughout the united states and you know using the associated press is less expensive than sending your own reporters. And they
3: so. can be very, very knowledgeable. I mean, those oh, yeah. reporters yeah. are Well, you amazed. asked the question and about
2: who do you go see. Yeah, yeah. They a- go, a- see you a- go see a- the, A-P the AP guy. guy. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, or it used to be the UPI guy, right. the yeah. Reuters guy, too. I mean, those are the guys who live there and really know their way around. Right. And you're right, they're wonderfully generous. Yeah, yeah.
4: And don't forget freelancers. I mean, th- it, this is a really good time for freelance journalism, you know, yeah. b- because the budgets are so low now uh, in television and print. And uh, I mean, I got my start as a foreign reporter by going to Bosnia, with absolutely no assignment, nothing, absolutely nothing. I just showed up there, and you know, I, I managed to publish some newspaper articles. I was paid all of seventy-five dollars for each one. But it was an incredible experience. And I came back with those clips and that in that experience, six months there, it was great. And that that is much more likely to happen if there are fewer staff reporters. I mean, it just it's easy. It makes sense. I want to thank you all. You've been great. Hey, you. Bastion Younger, Mark Diamond. <laughs> thank you. Thank you,
1: thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank all. <laughs> Thanks to the people of Penn.